The reading for this morning is from 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Brett. All right, let me get set up here. Well, good morning, Arcadia. It's good to see you all. Um, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. And if, you're, uh, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you may be wondering, well, who's this new guy? I'm, I'm actually not that new. I've just been uh, away. Our family does uh, about a 10 or 12 uh, day vacation every year over the 4th of July up in central Wisconsin. That's just where we go. We've been going there for years. The reason is because the fireworks are better in Wisconsin, and uh, it was true again this year. Anyway, it's good to be back. Um, I know that this time of year, also, many of you know that I go to the camp in Iowa to lead the family camp. That's not where I was. Some of you have already asked. That's coming up at the end of this month. I, uh, that camp in Iowa is always the first week of August, so I'll be heading there and then, and then back for the fall. But I, I appreciate you asking about that because uh, uh, I know that you know it's a big part of our lives as well. We've been going through the book of First John for the last several weeks, and we have um, uh, about six more weeks to go in First John. Actually, this is right in the middle. This is week seven of 13 uh, weeks. I want to remind you of the thesis of this letter, which you don't find at the beginning of the letter, but rather you find it uh, in chapter 5, at the end of the letter, verses 11 through 13. John writes, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So many of you know that John also wrote a gospel, the Gospel of John, but these two documents, the Gospel of John and 1 John, had different purposes that, uh, for which he wrote. In the Gospel of John, John says, I am writing this to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. So he's writing as an evangelist in the Gospel, but in 1 John, he's writing to people that he presumes are already believers, and he's writing them to say, this is what the life in Christ is supposed to look like. This is what it means to be a believer in Jesus. And last week, Tyler James helped us to understand that in the wake of the Antichrist discussion, we who are in Christ have the name above all names, and it's the, name, the only name that really counts. And I, I've, I've been finding this interesting, too. I, the way this worked out, right before <clears throat> this First John series, we did seven weeks in Romans chapter 8. And I keep finding, uh, even though Paul wrote Romans and John wrote uh, 1 John, I keep finding these crossovers between these uh, two letters. 
Um, John likes to use the word abide. You, we read through this and we see that John talks about how Christ and the Holy Spirit abides in us and we abide in Jesus. Uh, Paul uses the word dwell. He says that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the resurrected Christ dwells in us, and we dwell in him. They're using different words, but they mean the same thing. They're teaching the exact same thing. And that what they're teaching is that in Jesus, and only in Jesus, is that we have our salvation and our redemption from sin, which leads perfectly into the contrast of this week's message. The title of this week's message, which was put together by Luke Simmons over at Redemption Gateway, the title is The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. Uh, the fact that we don't take sin as seriously as we do is why he titled it uh, this way. Sin is incredibly powerful. We think we're smarter than sin, but actually sin is much more devious and clever than we are, and John is trying to point that out in this passage. In other words, sin is not a minor inconvenience in our life. It's not something to be excused or rationalized or even glorified. It's, in fact, the very thing that robs us, both in the eternal and in the temporal, of our lives. So let's take a look. We're going to divide this into three sections. The first section is verses 4 and 5. I'll reread them. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. By the way, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and in front of you and follow along with me so that you can get all the references that I'm going to be making. We're going verse by verse and uh, often clause by clause, and sometimes word by word as we go through this. Now, one of the reasons John writes these first two verses here, 4 and 5, is because of the false teaching that was making the rounds in all of those churches at that time in the late first century and throughout the second century in Asia Minor, the false teaching that we talked about before in this series. We talked about it when we introduced this series, that uh, probably the primary reason that John is writing this is to uh, push back against this false teaching that was going around everywhere, and the teaching was known as Gnosticism. And, and we have a 21st century uh, version of Gnosticism as well. This, this philosophy, this false teaching has never actually gone away, and the church has constantly had to push back against it, and it's always manifest in different ways, but it kind of comes from the same thing. Gnosticism holds, the philosophy of Gnosticism, the teaching of Gnosticism holds that salvation or redemption or nirvana, or purpose in life, or fulfillment in life, whatever it is that you want to call it, comes not through Jesus, but rather it only comes through acquiring knowledge, knowing stuff, just gathering as much, just being as smart as you can. In other words, today we might say it this way, becoming an intellectual elite, that's how you find nirvana, that's how you find uh, purpose, fulfillment, and salvation. And so, as a result, one of the tenets of Gnosticism, because one of the things that Gnosticism does is it tries to separate mind from body. And it puts the mind in control, and the body becomes dispensable, malleable, uh, even in some cases wicked. It becomes a prison that must be escaped. It becomes something that you must change, which is totally anti-biblical. 
The Bible has a high view of the body. The Bible talks about how our bodies are a temple and that we use our bodies for spiritual worship. And, that, and John write, uh, sorry, Paul writes in one of his letters that uh, to engage in sexual sin is actually sinning against your body. So it, the Bible pushes back against this Gnostic idea that the, Bible is, uh, that the body is, is temporal and not necessary, which, which uh, is one of the big teachings of Gnosticism, this separation of mind and body. And so the Gnostics would teach that behavior does not matter because the body is just temporal. It doesn't matter. The Gnostics like to say, and we might say it even today, matter doesn't matter. But matter does matter. God created it all. And so John needs to explain that behavior does matter because the body is important. And you're sinning against yourself when you sin. Not only are you sinning against God but others, and, and others, but you're also sinning against your body. And if you are engaged in ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, that is an indication that you have a wrong relationship with God. And so your, your walk in life is not matching your confession of Christ. And so you look at the stark contrast between uh, verses 4 and 5. John so desperately wants us to know where our salvation comes from, and it is in Jesus. Redemption is not in some philosophy such as Gnosticism, but it is centered in Christ. And John says, in clear contradistinction to the Gnostic false teachers, that if a person continues to practice sin... To continues to practice sin, he or she is lawless. They are without God. For John, the words sin and lawlessness are pretty much interchangeable. So what does lawlessness mean then? Well, generally, in, in the ancient Greek rhetorical scheme, and in, in, if you study all the ancient Greek from the first century, the word generally means the lack of usual social or ethical standards or behavior against the law. But here, the way John is using it, it has a deeper and much more specific meaning. What John is saying is that God is holy, and as such, God cannot abide in or around sin. And as such, God has a law. He has an ethic. He has a, he has a code. And so that means to sin, to be lawless, specifically, that person is against God. Sin is always something that sets us up in opposition to God. I've mentioned this before. When we sin, I'll just personalize it. When I sin, I am engaging in a, in a temporal act of unbelief in God when I sin. When I sin, I am saying, God, whatever it is that you have for me is not better for me than what I have for me. I'm going to go against what you have for me and do what I want. And that is against God. Sin is momentary disbelief in God, in that he is for you. So now, in verse 4, what does it mean to make a practice of sinning or to keep on sinning? I want you to note, John uses this language in these seven verses seven times. So this is a big deal to him, this idea of practicing sin or continuing to sin. Again, John is battling against the false teaching that sin does not matter um, because your physical body doesn't matter. So John is talking about repeated unrepentant sin, continuing to sin, making a practice of sinning, keeps on sinning, are those who are rejecting God's moral and sovereign will. Yes, even as some might say that they are followers of Christ. Uh, you've maybe heard the, the, the notion that your walk isn't quite matching your talk. Okay, And I've had people say that to me in times when it was clear 
to everyone else except maybe me that my walk was not matching my talk. I believe in Jesus, but boom. And somebody would call me out on that. And in the moment, I hated it. But later on, I would say that was the right thing for me, for that person to do, to call me out on that. So a key to remember is that while we never attain perfect sinlessness in this life, that's really key to remember. I don't want you to get discouraged in this, thinking, well, I'm still sinning. Okay, we're going to talk about that. We never achieve perfect sinlessness in this life. If anyone tells you you can do that, please run and come back to Redemption Church. Okay? But it is something that the follower of Christ should be striving for. We should be striving for that. There should be this process of sanctification. And to stop striving for that is to start to break fellowship with God. Then in verse 5, he says, And in him, Jesus, there is no sin. I'm going to spend a little time here, so buckle your seatbelts. At least two reasons this is important, and they are related. Here's the first one. The only way Jesus could atone for our sin was if he was perfect, if he was sinless. That's the only way. You think about the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law said that when you came to the temple and offered a sacrifice for your sin, that animal had to be spotless. It had to be perfect. And in fact, they would have inspectors in the temple looking at the animal you were bringing to make sure it was worthy of being sacrificed because uh, an animal that wasn't worthy of being sacrificed wasn't going to do anything for your sin. We've always been dog people. We've had a lot of dogs for a long, long time. And, and over the years, we've had two dogs that have lived into their 19th year, okay? So one was named Paco, which means little Frank. He was so cute. And the other one was named Lucy. And we just put down Lucy more, more recently. Um, but if we were going to sacrifice an animal for our sin and not make sure that we did the perfect ones, it would always be the 18-year-old Paco or Lucy. Because they couldn't see and they were, they were on their way out anyway. No, you could not bring an animal like that for, for sacrifice. You had to bring the best that you had to God because he's the best. And so you had to be able to do that. So Jesus never having sinned means that when he was on the cross and the last words he uttered were, it is finished, when he says it's finished, it really was the last sacrifice for sin. We never have to do anything else. We just embrace Jesus, the call of the gospel on our lives. He had to be perfect in order to do that, and he was. He was sinless. Therefore, no other act of sacrifice, contrition, or penance is needed to pay for our sin. In Christ, it's done, it's over, it's finished. That's really good news. Here's the second thing, though. That Jesus never sinned points to the indisputable fact that he was God come in the flesh. He was the incarnation of God. Yet, uh, this is yet another testimony in the scriptures that Jesus is divine. His essence is that of God. Uh, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 10 specifically says that Jesus' essence is that of God the Father. So, the fact that Jesus never sinned is contrary to you and me and everyone else because we have this sin nature and we do sin and that's why he's the perfect sacrifice. Again, I, I just, I'll, I'll spend some time here because we're in the textual neighborhood. I often hear these proclamations as if they are facts. Often. Often. Here's the first one. The Bible never said that Jesus didn't sin. Really? Okay, so 1 John 3, 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Hebrews 4, 15. Isaiah 53, 9. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. And oh, by the way, all the Gospels. 
Here's the other one. Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Okay, just one passage there. Read the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, and then buy me a latte and we'll talk about it, okay? I once, it's about 25 years ago, I once read a review of a movie. I read a lot of movie reviews. I like movies. I think some of you know that. I read a review of this movie. I found the review very interesting. The author of the review was giving this movie a very bad assessment. Terrible story, awful this, awful that, just not good. Anyway, I was interested in this review until at the end of the review, the author of the review admitted that she had not seen the movie. And the Arizona Republic published the review. Okay? Now, just a personal aside, I, I can sort of understand that about a movie. I mean, I didn't have to go see the second Avatar to know that I wanted to avoid it. Okay? And I'm very sorry for all of you Avatar fans that I just insulted you. I, I, I get that, okay? But I'm not going to go see it. I saw the first one. That was plenty. That was like three movies, okay? So I'm done with that. It's just like John Wick. I mean, I saw the first half of the first movie. That's done, okay? All right? I like Keanu Reeves, but gee whiz. Enough is enough already. Anyway, the problem is, is that this is a lot more serious in movies. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that was really encouraging. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you're going to assert supposedly factual claims about what's written in the Bible, you just might want to read it first. The number of people who have made those two claims to me, okay, now, I'm a rhetorical guy, so what's, they say those things, what's my first question? Well, show me in the Bible where that's true, okay? Have you read the Bible? It is stunning how many people have answered that question this way. No, I have not ever read the Bible, but everybody knows that's true. They're relying on what other people are telling them. You've heard the saying, if you repeat a lie, uh, a lie enough times, it becomes a truth in many people's minds. This is what is known in the postmodern world that we live in. This is what's known as a known known. The Bible did this, the Bible did that, the Bible didn't do this, the Bible didn't do that. I haven't read it, but I've heard it from, pe- from reliable sources. Okay? Not true. Anyway, since I was in the textual neighborhood, I thought I'd spend a minute or two on that. And finally, let's be sure we understand this. That there is no sin in Jesus means that Jesus is, as one New Testament scholar writes, completely hostile to evil. Now again, I know this is a tough passage today, just to let you know. It's not going to get any easier. It's going to get harder, okay? But he writes, Jesus is completely hostile against evil completely hostile to evil. We hate to think of Jesus as as having any measure of hostility in him, right? He's just this nice guy with flowing hair, walked around talking to people, okay? Never got upset except for that table-turning thing, okay? All right? But I want us to understand that Jesus being hostile to evil is a gracious act of love. It is a gracious act of love. And I know this is uh, C.S. Lewis. He described this as chronological snobbery. Have anybody heard that term before? Just because we're alive today in, in 2023, that automatically makes us smarter who, uh, uh, than anybody else who's lived before us. No matter how much we haven't read, no matter how much we haven't studied, just the fact that we're alive today, we're smarter than anybody else in history. It's chronological snobbery. Okay? 
As a result, people today define love as something that is not opposed to evil, but rather embraces and affirms evil because love affirms everything, no matter how foolish and unsafe it is. Well, guess what? They had the same problem in the late first century, too. This is not a new deal. It's not a new thing. Human beings, because of our inherent nature of sin, which is a problem, we have constantly been trying to redefine, rationalize, and even exalt things that are ungodly, that are not righteous. They had the same problem then. Possibly the most destructive form of foolishness is the foolishness that denies reality and lives in fantasy and then forces everybody else to live in that fantasy as well. Genuine love hates anything that destroys a person, no matter how good it feels or how cool it is or how culturally mandated it is. Jesus hates sin because sin hates us and deceives us, and Jesus loves us. So, verses 6 through 8. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Everybody, I just, I just know this again from experience. Oh, 1 John, it's the, it's the book of love. It's so fun. God is love. It's love, 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 love. And then you get to this stuff and you're like, eee, this is harsh. He's talking about being of the devil. He's, he's really drawing some lines here. And this is tough stuff. So first, let's unpack the contrast between keeps on sinning and practices righteousness. By the way, have you noticed that John uses a lot of contrast when he writes? It's a very effective rhetorical technique. Anyway, again, in regard to keeps on sinning, the great New Testament scholar Leon Morris makes this point. John is not writing about individual acts of sin, but rather about habitual attitudes of sin. It's an important distinction. But how do we practice righteousness? So is this suddenly a works-based theology? Don't we believe in grace? Do we believe in grace here at Redemption? I hope so. I hope that's not a trick question for y'all. Of course we believe in grace. We, we believe in biblical, gospel-centered teaching. Practicing righteousness is not about making a list of good deeds and then finding a way to do them. Practicing righteousness, very simply, is the opposite or the inverse of living with habitual attitudes of sin. That's what it is. Practicing righteousness, as we, have, as we have discussed in the recent Romans 8 series, is maintaining a moment-by-moment connection with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, constantly maintaining an indwelling attitude of prayer, and taking every thought and deed captive to Christ. In other words, it is the power of Christ in us to push back against those habitual attitudes and patterns of sin which every one of us in this room has. Every one of us. If you want to know about mine, just talk to Jackie. She's right over there. Okay? And if you're a recipient of God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will, in response to that great gift of grace, seek to live a life that practices righteousness instead of habitual sin. See, practicing righteousness is not something that gets us saved. It is a response to our salvation. The deception of the world and its ear-tickling philosophies are a serious threat to our faith in the midst of that. And that's why John says in verse 7, let no one deceive you. One of the most difficult things we as Christians encounter when we embrace the gospel 
is the constant assault by the world on our convictions. We are con- and by the way, it's not just the world. It's even inside the church we get this assault. We're constantly prodded, manipulated, or argued into compromising or simply abandoning our convictions in regard to what we know is true. It's so much easier to feel loved by the world and culture than to feel loved by God. But that's where the deception comes in. And hard as it is, we need to resist the temptation to allow others to deceive us about our faith, deceive us about who God is, and deceive us about what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us. And the reason why, John tells us in verse 8, if we allow ourselves to be deceived, we abandon our convictions and we will no longer practice righteousness and we will become, his words not mine, of the devil. Of the devil. We like to just sort of blow by stuff like that. But isn't that something that maybe we should at least stop and consider? What is John trying to get at? Satan's entire game is based on just trying to take us away from Jesus. That's his whole game. You ever notice how Satan never seems to bother those who don't know Jesus? He's coming after those of us who have proclaimed to know Jesus. And by the way, just say this again. It seems like I have to say this almost every week. No one ever said the lie. That's not true. There are people who say the life of the Christian faith is going to be really easy. They're wrong. Run from them. That's false teaching. The Bible even tells us that it's going to be hard. Jesus said in John chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. I don't recall that ever being on Oprah. I can still reference Oprah. She's still alive. I know I'm dating myself a little bit. No one ever said the life of faith would be easy. Not Jesus, not Paul, not John, not James, not Peter, not God. It's going to be tough. The point is is that we have God with us while it's difficult. And then lastly about verse 8, and this is really big. This is huge. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So again, this seems important, right? He's going to destroy the works of the devil. So how does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? In going to the cross... Jesus undoes the curse of sin, which came in Genesis chapter 3. He undoes the curse of sin for those who accept him. And then the resurrection three days later is what gives us eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, atonement for sin on the cross, eternal life through the resurrection three days later. This is great news. Okay? The devil is all about the curse of sin and death. Jesus is all about blessing and life. And when Jesus went to the cross and rose from the death three days later, blessing and life won and won decisively. God says it this way to the devil himself in Genesis chapter 3. He says, you're going to wound my Messiah, but my Messiah is going to utterly destroy you. And Jesus did that on the cross. So, last two verses, 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and the one who does not love his brother. Whoa, again, this is tough stuff. So verse 9, again. No one born of God keeps on sinning. So, first of all, we have this idea of being born again. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you were born once of your mother, and then you were born again of the Spirit into the gospel, Christ. 
When we come to Jesus and accept Him as Lord, we are born again into a new life of joy, power, discipline, and grace. I've said before that born-again Christian is redundant. But I also understand how confusing it can be, especially if people are new to this. I understand that. In fact, it was confusing to Nicodemus. Anybody remember the guy, that guy Nicodemus? Gospel of John, chapter 3. He was thoroughly confused by this notion. Nicodemus was part of the Jerusalem religious elite. He was part of the, part of the ruling council there. And so he wanted to know more about Jesus, who was this new rabbi in town, and, and Jesus was teaching all sorts of, and doing all sorts of amazing things. And so he came to Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, inquiring of Jesus about God. And it's always interesting to me, uh, if you notice in the Gospels, Jesus always answers the question you should have asked, not the question you did ask, and he does this with Nicodemus as well. Nicodemus says something to him, and Jesus says to him that the only way a person enters the kingdom of God, the only way the person is forgiven of their sins and spends eternity in heaven, is to be born again. He says that to Nicodemus. And, and I don't have the video of it, but I can just imagine Nicodemus, is, he's got to be like, what in the world? Because he says, it's recorded, he says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, that would be a problem. But Jesus explains to him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and your confession of me as Messiah, you are born again of the Holy Spirit. So the question becomes for you and me, who are we born of? Are we born of spirit or of flesh? Are we born of Satan or of Jesus? And second, once again, John raises the issue of continuous sin. Like I said, seven times in seven verses he talks about this. If you're truly born of God, you do not keep on sinning. You know, John has already reputed any sort of doctrine of sinless perfection. He's already reputed that. This idea that once you come to Christ, you're never going to sin again. I've heard that occasionally taught places. It's just not true. Paul even talks about that in Romans chapter 7. We're just still in this battle. And in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 1, John wrote that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. He's talking about us bringing our sin, our individual acts of sin to God in confession. But now he's talking about, again, this idea of habitual, unrepentant, continuous sin, patterns of sin. What John is doing here is pointing us to the truth that there is actually something supernatural about the life of the believer. I don't think we talk about this enough. That the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in us, that's a supernatural reality in our lives. We have the supernatural ability by God's power in us to overcome this natural inclination and all the natural inclinations of this world. And that's a wonderful thing about the gospel. A believer in Jesus has been regenerated. Notice the word seed in these verses. The believer has been regenerated, reborn, re-sprouted, if you want to use that language, by nothing less than the power of God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's actually in the Bible. In fact, it's in chapter 4, and we're going to be there in three weeks. Again, that is really good news. And this is reiterated again in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children born of God. The one who keeps on sinning that has this continuous habitual sin is not born of God. So, again, this is important, but really, really tense. According to John... According to John, he says, you should be able to observe somebody's life who professes Christ 
and observe their life and at least have an inkling as to whether or not they really believe in what they're, they're confessing. Does their walk match their talk? Are they striving to live in Christ and live by the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, so I have a Southern Baptist background from decades ago. And so there's this term that they used to use in the Southern Baptist church that I didn't really ever get on board with, but they described it as being fruit inspectors. Anybody ever hear, hear that? I'm a, I'm a fruit inspector. I'm going to inspect your fruit. In other words, the way you live your life and see if your walk really matches your confession of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that just sounds a little bit, I mean, I don't, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not interested in that. Sounds also really judgmental and all that stuff, and that bothers us. But if somebody's professing and proclaiming to know Jesus through the gospel and has all these areas of unrepentant sin, and in fact is trying to, in trying to explain it away, rationalize it, or even glorify it, I think we can say that might be a problem. Okay? So, so are you with God, or are you of your flesh? Are you born of this world? We need to accept that there's some truth to this. I'll give you, admittedly, this is an extreme example, but I'll give you an example. Charles Manson claimed to be a Christian. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't think he was. His walk did not seem to match his talk. Anybody who wants to disagree with that, you can talk to Tyler James later, okay? Go talk to him. But isn't it okay to say about someone, you know, by the way, and do this in relationship, in covenant, in trusted, forgiving, graceful community, isn't it okay to say to somebody, I'm concerned about the path you're going down right now? Isn't that okay? I would say it is. Because to be in Christ means that you are striving and, tra- and being transformed and changing. I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. I will tell you, that this is what, 37 years ago I came to Christ. My life is different today, not because I'm older, but my spiritual life is different today than it was when I was 26 years old. Way different. Now, because this has happened incrementally over the course of nearly four decades, believe me, there are days when I'm sitting around going, I'm the same guy I was when I was 26. I just don't have the body to be able to do the things I used to be able to do. Okay? But I feel like I'm the same guy. But because it happened so slowly. But I hate to put her on the spot. But if you ask my wife, Jackie, she will tell you, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's different. He's still a problem, but not nearly as big a problem as he used to be. Okay? Now, I don't know if I'm not nearly as big a problem. I think I've just worn her down over the last 36 years. But at any rate, she will tell you, Frank is different. He's been pursuing God. Of course he still sins. Of course I still sin. Okay? But isn't it okay? Look, I'm concerned. But of course, do that in relationship. Do that in covenantal relationship. But sin is so powerful, isn't it? So let's end with this. As I mentioned, the title of today's message is The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. John spent this entire passage repeating time and time again his warnings against patterns of sinfulness because sin is exceedingly sinful. It's relentless. It's potent. It's formidable. Patterns and habitual attitudes of sin do not go away passively. You have to actively attack this by the power of, of, of the Holy Spirit in you. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, when he came to Christ, when he was 30 years old, 
he had a very serious problem with drinking. And he came to Christ and started to proclaim Jesus. And yet he continued to have this big problem with drinking. And one morning, he woke up, and this is by his own testimony, he woke up one morning in bed, still in his work clothes, and he had found that he had stuffed two planters into the suit pockets of his, of his suit jacket and slept in it and woke up with, uh, with dirt and plants all over his, his bed. And after he realized what had happened, his prayer that morning was, listen, God, we need to work on this. In fact, I'm going to set aside everything else, and we're going to fix this now, and it's going to be by your power. In other words, he couldn't just passively get that problem under control. He had to engage God. He had to be active about it. We cannot do this passively. So the question is, are you killing sin? Because if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. So think about it this way. Here are all the things, not all the things, some of the things that sin destroys. Sin destroys fellowship and relationships, both vertically and horizontally. Sin destroys our fellowship and relationship with God. Have you ever noticed how someone who is steeped in sin, they tend to run from God and run from their faith community rather than running to God and to their faith community? When that's exactly where they need to run is to God and to their faith community when they're in sin. That's what they need to do. And then fellowship and relationship with others, family and friends, corrupted by sin. Have you ever harmed a relationship with a friend, family member, or spouse by living a life of righteousness? I haven't. I've harmed lives, trust me, but not through righteousness. Sin destroys joy. I know again from experience that sin is often quite fun when you're doing it. But the devastation we live in after the sin, is that really joyful? Furthermore, when sin destroys joy, it is in effect destroying your relationship with yourself. Is that good? Sin also destroys trust. How much trust have you lost because of sin? I hate to even think about what I've lost in terms of trust from others through my sin. Sin also destroys intelligence and wisdom. When we begin to rationalize, blame shift, excuse and exalt sin, we become intellectually bankrupt and we become fools. I'm going to go on. One more. Sin also destroys compassion and mercy. When a person is mired in sin, and I have personally experienced this, when a person is mired in sin, the way we stay there is to become mired in self. We become so inwardly focused, which ultimately means that compassion and mercy are jettisoned. I have personally never known anyone mired in their own sin to be faithful in looking out for the good of others. They are so myopic about themselves. Um, again, I'll mention Schrader, Tom, our founding pastor. Um, in the last five years of his life, quite often he would talk about his desire, even when things were going well for him physically and he was good, he would talk about his desire to leave this world because he's just sick of sin. He's sick of the sinfulness of this world. And then he would always say, and the sin I am most sick of is my own. I cannot wait to be with Jesus so that my sin is gone. I know that sounds a bit morbid, 
but it's also a, a solid understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Jesus came to mortify our sin through his crucifixion and resurrection. And that is good news and has always been good news. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we sometimes we find it hard with a passage like this to be thankful. Uh, but it is a passage like this that reminds us that what Jesus died for was not incidental. What Jesus died for was everything, everything for us. He has come to take care of the one thing that we could never take care of ourselves. And he did it with grace and love and mercy. And he did it also while telling us and speaking the truth to us. God, we thank you for that. And I just pray that we would be the type of community and the type of people that would live into that. Uh, not only in a truthful way, that's important, but also in a gracious and loving way. Uh, that we'd be able to um, enter into strong, covenantal, trusting, forgiving, graceful relationships and then be able to speak truth to each other in love. God, I, I, I just pray that we would be filled with your spirit and we could do that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.